Hi there, this is Jaime Alejandro with the Arts Calling Podcast, the podcast where I interview hardworking independent creatives in the literary, visual, and performing arts. So to get things rolling, we won't have any shout-outs today, mostly because it's a holiday and I don't feel like it, but there will be some links in the episode description, so be sure to check those out. Now, today I am thrilled to be Arts Calling writer and educator Wendy Bashant. So here's a little bit about our guest. Wendy Bichon has taught and served as Dean and Professor of English for 30 years at schools as diverse as UC San Diego, Coe College, New College of Florida, Eastman School of Music, and California Western School of Law. Her writing includes scholarly articles, book chapters, poetry, and travel articles. She was a finalist for both the Peter Taylor Prize for Literature and the Givel Press Novel Award. Her memoir, The Same Bright Moon, was a 2023 New York Book Festival winner. A graduate of Middlebury College and the University of Rochester, she currently lives in San Diego with her husband and two cats. She teaches adult literacy through the public library system and volunteers at the San Diego Zoo. She also plays the harp and tries to practice her Mandarin with as much regularity and discipline as she can muster. Now, this was a lovely conversation. We covered a lot of topics in particular about the the pandemic and, and the climate around that situation. But uh, overall, it was about her experience as an educator in China that was incredibly thrilling. And I myself am incredibly disappointed that I didn't ask Wendy about her heart playing. So maybe that will be something we cover next time. And so without further delay, hope you enjoy the conversation and let's give her a call. Wendy, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Where does this call find you? So I'm in San Diego. I just got back from the East Coast, so I'm a little bit jet lagged. <laughs> but that probably puts me sort of in a median between uh, East Coast and West Coast, which is your time. Um, oh, wonderful. So uh, has that always been home for you? Have you always been uh, in that neck of the woods? Actually, I've moved around a lot. I was born in Seattle, Washington. I grew up in upstate New York. Um, I My first job was in Iowa. My second job was in <laughs> Florida. So it's probably all over the place. I also spent a bit of time traveling when my family was, um, my family was a traveling family. So I spent two years in Japan and one year in Germany as well as a child. Mm. And so, it's a book about travel. Right, right. So if you li- like, uh, why don't we dig into the book? Because I think it might be a good place to, to get to know a bit about how you, you came to find uh, the, the reason for writing the book, but also uh, might inform a little bit more about your background. Uh, would you mind giving us sort of the uh, introduction to what your book is about? Sure. My my book is about teaching in China um, from 2019 to about 2021, which most of us know were fairly significant dates in China. I had a sort of a midlife crisis in 2019, quit my job. I was a dean of students, a vice president of student life at a law school, and I just thought I didn't want to do it anymore. So my husband and I said, what else can we do? And we said, "Let's let's go to China and teach English. Um, Little did we know China was going to be the epicenter of a lot of exciting things going on here, um, not least of which was the COVID virus. And so we were there when COVID broke out. um, And I think it's an interesting book, not because of COVID. Maybe we've all been COVID out. I'm not sure. But it's interesting because it gives a really unique perspective of the students and me as we kind of come, come in contact with the virus and try to make sense out of it. I think it's a lot more about my students than it is about me. I had trouble when I was trying to market it because I wasn't sure if it was a memoir or nonfiction or in some ways fiction because the students write a lot of poetry and stories about themselves that get woven into the book at the time. And I, I think it's a unique book because it offers a voice about from China that's not dictated by politics and that's not dictated by um, agendas. It was really just my students and me teaching talking. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like such a phenomenal journey. And it just so happened to occur at that really pivotal, really fraught time that that nobody knew what was going on. And if I may pry a little bit, I'm curious of what led you to make that choice. Uh, you mentioned having that kind of, of massive, I guess, 
crisis or, or maybe a, a <laughs> maybe a, a turning point in so many words. But I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit more on what that was that that made you take that decision. Sure. Um, being in California, it, there's a very big Asian presence in California. And so at my school, I taught at UCSD, um, UC San Diego, we had about 12 to 15% um, Chinese nationals in our school. And I, I felt somewhat compelled to want to be able to speak the language that I was, especially I was meeting with a fair number of students. And so my husband and I, about five years before we decided to go to China, um, employed a tutor to come to our house and teach us Chinese. Mm. He's a physician, and so he had a lot of Chinese students, uh, Chinese patients, and so being able to speak Chinese just a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Chinese is not an easy language to learn. Um, so when we started to think about going and teaching Chinese uh, English abroad, China was at the top of our list. We'd been thinking about it, um, practicing it. Our, our Chinese was pretty weak, and so we thought maybe a year immersed in Chinese would make our language skills a little bit better. It did, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was nice. Um, but Chinese still remains an incredibly hard language. Yeah, I, I can imagine, you know, not only looking at it in terms of the cultural aspect of, of immersing yourself in this culture, but having the basic wherewithal to to, to learn the language, that just seems incredibly daunting to me, but especially in your role as, as a, I guess, I guess somebody who's overseeing a lot of major happenings at a university or an institution like that, that cannot be easy in terms of the mental strain. Could you elaborate a bit about how you go about making this journey possible, especially while you're taking care of these other responsibilities? Because I'm, I, I know very little about that, that, um, part of academics or, or sort of what that entails, but I do imagine that it must be pretty daunting work. Sure. So my job before I went to Jiaotong, before I went to Xi'an, was um, dean of students. Um, and so basically when students, I always say that deans of students take care of the leaders, the people who are the, at the top of the class, and the students who are straggling, the students at the bottom of the class, for whatever reason. They may have mental health issues. They may have um, physical health issues. They might have gotten into trouble. You know, oftentimes I'll be dealing with conduct issues. And so you Frequently, we're seeing particularly students who didn't want to come to your office, students who needed some sort of um, emotional or physical support. I always like to think of myself as the, the shepherd <laughs> in, in academia, where there are a lot of things that can pick you off if you're a student. You can There's wolves, there's uh, coyotes, there's you know bad weather, and you have to sort of be there trying to help them find the path. And it was always rewarding when you saw them cross the stage at UC San Diego, the way it works is we have colleges and the colleges have graduations and the graduations, oftentimes the Dean of Students is the person who um, reads the names out loud. That was actually another reason why I wanted to take Chinese is I had to read many Asian names out loud and I just massacred them the first year I did that. And I thought, if nothing else, if I can at least get the pronunciation, I won't feel so horrible as they walk across the stage and I say their name completely wrong. Um, so it, 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 it's we welcome them when they come into school and we wave goodbye to them when they leave and a large percentage of students never interact with deans of students at all um, mm. sometimes I I'll, parents say oh I don't even know who our dean of students is and I say you know what that's a pr pretty good I good thing <laughs> it means that I never had to contact you or it means there were no problems that way but it's a rewarding job I think of it as um, similar to being my husband's a physician and it's similar to being a doctor you know you you're you're trying to keep people well enough so that they get across the stage um, it's an emotionally draining job though and I think that's probably one of the reasons why I felt like I wanted to go back to teaching kind of go back to the basics <laughs> right right that's that's got to be a phenomenal journey but uh as i always say one of the strongest things that somebody could do is have the wherewithal to acknowledge what their situation is what their emotional situation is but for you uh since you've been in this world for for a bit of time uh where did you start in terms of your your teaching education then we can get into the book a little bit but now i'm just kind of going all over the place so i appreciate it <laughs> 
I got a BA at um, Middlebury, uh, which is in Vermont. It's a language school. It's a school very focused on international. So I guess my interest in international learning has always been there. I then got my PhD, my master's and PhD in English literature and British literature specifically. So I taught 19th century novels. Um, and my first job, tenure track job was in Iowa at a small liberal arts college. Um, there I had a fab fabulous mentor who was the chair of the department um, at uh, Coe College, the small liberal arts college, and he was fascinated with Asia and he hooked me up to the Asian students there. So I think you can kind of see the theme going through that. Um, I, it was a wonderful school. I actually liked Iowa a lot more than I thought I might. Um, I, I didn't have any contact to the Midwest, Midwest at all, but I found that it was uh, a nice place to start my career. The difficulty was my family lived in San Diego and I didn't know anybody in Iowa, so I started looking for a job in administration, which is a little bit easier to move around in than a tenure track, you're sort of there for life. And I sort of felt, I, I think this is a theme, but I sort of felt the doors closing on me and I wasn't going to be able to move and I was stuck in the Midwest. So I got a job at a small liberal arts college in Florida that has recently been in the news. Um, it's a public liberal arts school called New College of Florida, and it's um, become a political football down in, in, uh, in Florida. It wasn't a political football when I was there. It was a very liberal school. It had doesn't have grades. It was very kind of liberal-leaning in, in terms of um, education and learning um, styles. There's no grades. We had terrific students, really, really smart students who were willing to take a risk. I was there still far away from family. So when the job opened up at UC San Diego and I got it, I moved out, out here. Yeah. I mean, that, that does sound like a, like an interesting trajectory. And I'm intrigued by the, um, I imagine the, the swells and surges of, of political climates and education, they have to be so erratic it might seem but maybe you as, as seeing as an individual who has a bird's eye view perhaps on what's going on in some of these institutions what what have those changes been like for you because as somebody who's seen uh some some things in in that realm i'm curious of of what you think of these swells and surges of, of political discontent on, on various ends of, of the conversation I might say that kind of jumping to the end of my career, when I came back from Xi'an, I considered going back into education and things had changed so dramatically um, since 2020, since um, COVID, since uh, blue state, red state language. I, I couldn't, I didn't have the stomach to go back to it um, because I, I really, um, think that education is sort of the, the front line of politics nowadays, which is a shame. You know, students should should be able to learn the, the whole kind of book banning stuff um, frightens me. I'll, I'll, this is kind of apart from where we are. I, I, I think it ties to my book in interesting ways because my book ostensibly is about COVID, but I think it's also about the political climate that we're in right now because I had this really weird um, comparison between the Trump tweets that were coming out all the time and the communist CCP and the issues that I had to deal with that way. And I found more and more, although my book is not political or tried not to be political either in China or in, in America, it was just fascinating as I had to put the Trump into some sort of context for the students who understood the CCP. So it it does end up being probably more about the politics of the time than COVID, although COVID was connected to politics without any doubt. Without so a doubt, yeah. It's always funny because I'd come into class, I was teaching American culture, and I'd come into class with a lesson plan and an idea, and this one of the students would come up with a tweet and say, what does this mean? And I'd think, I have no idea. <laughs> Let me do something and find out what it means. And so then we'd come back and end up talking about American history and American culture. And, and that ended up being more of my class than the, than the culture class that I had planned. Oh, that's so fascinating to be able to not not to act as the representative of America in those situations. But it feels like you might have felt that pressure perhaps to to explain the burden, you know, of, of an entire country. But if we could talk about being in that environment and, and when you get there on that first day, can you share a bit about what those feelings were like of, of meeting a, a class and, and trying to begin, get your, get up and running, I should say. Right. There were so many things. It was a culture shock kind of on, on so many different fronts. I arrived on August 26th, um, 20. 
2019. Um, I had no idea even what I was getting into. I had no, no course plans, no list of the classes that I was going to teach. Um, I had gone through a lot of gyrations to get a work permit at the time. Um, and I, apply, I, I arrived at a school that's a lot like Caltech or MIT. It's called Jiaotong University. Very smart students, very talented students I knew, but that was it. Um, and I was given my class list. I was going to be teaching nine classes, which is unheard of in the Amer in America the most classes I think you're ever you ever teach is maybe four possibly five I was gonna be teaching nine about 220 students four of them were going to be writing classes which are also intensive writing and uh, uh, teaching um, uh, advanced writing to sophomore students in college and the other ones were going to be American cultural and literature classes for American cultural and literature classes. The last one was going to be on Saturday from 12, nine o'clock in the morning till 12. Mm, so oh, wow. there wasn't much of a vacation yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. to the, the minors on American culture. So um, four of the classes were sort of the same. Four of the other classes were sort of the same and one was brand new. So three preps was what it was going to be. Um, I'd gotten this. We we went into a, a meeting that was for uh, the foreign teachers. There were um, no Americans, but several British expats in the room. It seemed to be kind of an. Uh, I found the job on a British expat on a Cambridge website. I was kind of just searching, and it was a random. I I heard of the school, so random. I wrote to them, and they said, "Oh yes, we'll take you." Come to find out, they hadn't had American PhD student in a while, and so they wanted to have somebody who could teach their advanced classes. So we went in, they read us the rules, which were the CCP is, the Communist Party is central, no religion in classes, make sure you start your classes on time, no phones in classes, you shouldn't be playing on your phones, now go and teach. No, those are, that was basically the extent of the background that we had. Um, and then I went and I started teaching my class. Um, I, the first class, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare a syllabus. So I went in with a lot of questions, asking them what they expected, what they knew about American education, so I could start to kind of create some sort of a comparison. It was also a survival technique to find out what they expected from me right. and, and how they wanted me to teach. It ended up being that they wanted a lot, the students expected a lot more lecture than I was used to. I was much more of a discussion kind of person. And so um, I pushed them a little bit out of their comfort zone. We, we put our classroom into a circle, which they all in the beginning thought, what are you doing? And then in the end, they teased me about it a lot. But it, it turned into a really, really um, fun moment. There was one Thing that a student said to me that struck with me is she said I, I had told them that I thought I might write a book this was about three quarters of the way through um, and I just had collected so many amazing essays that they'd written and you know teaching 220 students you got a lot of writing oh, wow. they'd written amazing poems just just crazy amazing poems about their life growing up and so I had said I thought that I might teach uh, I might write a book about them and I, how would they feel about that and would they be available because I was going to need to contact them through WeChat which is the kind of social media in China and when students said oh that's great you'll write something like Dead Poet Society only for Chinese students <laughs> and I thought for me and I thought yeah maybe I could call it Dead Poets Oh, no, that's already been taken. But that is where um, the book, The Same Bright Moon, came from, was this whole notion of how I could capture this sort of um, uh, uh, collaborative environment that you have when you teach that seems to escape politics sometimes. You know, maybe I'm naive that way. And we did have political arguments and political moments that were um, tense, particularly towards the end. But at the same time, I really felt like I was learning from them and they were learning from me. That That's so remarkable. And for a moment, I completely forgot about just the, the practicality or the mechanics of running a classroom that size. I That, mm -hmm. that seems like just a, a Herculean effort to try to sort of manage and keep everyone engaged. Um, but you answered my question that I was going to ask you recently is when did the inklings of of a project, of a writing project sort of begin? And it seemed like it was pretty early then when you, when you first uh, got the... The inclination, right? COVID. I mean, so what happened was, was we, my husband and I set up a blog 
to communicate with our family. We weren't sure how easy it was going to be to communicate in China. Um, we heard that there was a firewall. It ended up being that it was fairly easy to communicate through mm. VPNs. So we, 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 we talked quite a bit, but I set up a blog. And in the beginning, we had maybe 10 people read our blog. I'm sure one was my mom and one was Dave's <laughs> mom. And one, you know, so it was a very, and, and we put up stuff that we learned about from our students and such like that. In January, um, this this disease broke out. My mom started, and it actually was in December, she sent us a note from the New York Times saying, have you seen this? And it was Wuhan, there's a disease that broke out. And I wrote back and said, oh, mom, you know, the news is always so big and it's not, not a big thing. Wuhan is a good four hours away from us, don't worry. Um, and then it became something. And so my I, I watched the blog numbers and it went from like 10 to 15 to 1,000 a week, you know, because people were sharing all over and we're reading about it and then starting in March we we got you know 10,000 people a week and I thought maybe I should turn this into a, a, a book because it just feels as though people are interested in it um, I worried once I got the book actually written that people were sick of it um, but as I said we should still be interested in China because China's still in the news um, in various ways and so I, I think it's still worthwhile yeah, and I couldn't agree more because the repercussions of something like this will be felt for a long time. And to have a document that was real time there as something mm -hmm. like this was unfolding, I can't imagine the the relevance and how it will continue to gain relevance as as the years okay. go on. Um, but speaking of of the kind of, I I don't mean to say paranoia of of uh, a foreigner in a foreign land or right an American in a foreign mm -hmm. land, but um, could you share a bit more about what it was like being at the ground level of this event personally, emotionally, what were the things that you and your husband were going through as this was unfolding? If you could give me a bit more on, uh, in terms of the timeline there between January and March, right? Cause that seemed, that was the, sure. yeah. Sure. Maybe we'll start in December. Cause what happens is we gave our exams, um, exams. Uh, my first exam was on Christmas day. And then I had a couple more exams in January and my husband and I started talking about what we wanted to do for the break. We had a six week break uh, before the Chinese New Year and then we'd come back after the Chinese New Year. Um, my first thought was warmth because we were in Xi'an and it was freezing cold and the pollution was terrible. Um, the thick smoke and smog is real. And so we said, let's go south. And my husband's first thought was Sanya, which is a little bit like the Hawaii of China. Um, I'm not a beach person, and so I said, how about Shanghai? We haven't been to Shanghai. Dave's like, Shanghai's almost the same level as Xi'an. Um, there'll be a lot of smoke still there. So we stayed on Guangzhou. Guangzhou is southern, um, beautiful. It's the gateway to Hong Kong, so we might take a train down to Hong Kong. At the time, there was a lot of um, unrest in Hong Kong, so we weren't sure the State Department was saying, don't travel to Hong Kong. So it was funny because our focus was on, should we go to Hong Kong or not? Should we go to Hong Kong? Not, not COVID at all. We traveled to um, Guangzhou. It's lovely and beautiful. It's warm. Um, and we decided, oh, let's go on to Hong Kong. It's, uh, it's fun. I love Britain. It's got a lot of British uh, impact. And we get to Hong Kong and it's empty. And we assume that it's empty because of the unrest. And so we take pictures of ourselves in front of all the, um, the hot spots of Hong Kong. And we start to get texts from our students in Xi'an saying, you got to get out of there. That's a really bad place to be. There's a bad disease. You should go home to the U.S. or at very at very best go back to Xi'an. Xi'an has only 12 cases. Um, Hong Kong has many, many more. And we're like, what? You know, really? I, I don't think we should worry about that. Um, and we write back to our students, so oh, don't worry. And a, a bunch of the students, particularly ones who were in the, in the medical field, my husband was um, teaching medical students as mm. I was teaching the literature students, and they said, no, we're serious. You need to go. So we look at each other and we say, well, let's go back to Guangzhou. So we cross over to Guangzhou. In Guangzhou, we had a couple friends. And when they found out we were back, they're like, ah, don't come back. They brought us masks. They first of all said, you need to get masks and, and sanitizer. We went to the drugstore. There's nothing there. And it was a little bit like apocalyptic. You know, you're right. Mm -hmm. There's not that yeah. many people. The shelves are empty. We don't have any sort of sense of why. Um, the, the person from Guangzhou, who was mostly our, um, our very dear friend of one of our friends in San Diego, who spoke very little English, did a lot of Google translating to us saying, go home, go home. We said, we're not going home. We don't have any health insurance back in the U.S. We have health insurance. <laughs> you know, first things first. So we um, get our, 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 our airport 
plane ticket uh, changed. And we get into the Guangzhou airport. Um, I can read you the beginning of my book because it's actually got some of the Guangzhou air, if that's okay. Yeah, that, that'd be lovely. Um, it's Guangzhou, January 22nd, 2020. We walked through an empty airport built for a city of 15 million and there wasn't a soul in sight. Airy windows, two stories above our head, seemed made for giants. Fluorescent and natural light merged, creating an unholy glow as we wheeled our suitcases through this completely vacant terminal. Steel support stood sentry at the building's entrance, forming a series of Vs. V for virus, V for vector, V for virulent, I whispered to myself as I studied the simple geometric pattern before entering the building. The sturdy metal zigzagged through the entrance hall like crooked bolts of lightning. They were the main structural supports of the Guangzhou International Airport. At one of the ticket counters, a person wrapped in white plastic peered at us through a window behind a closed door. Twice we'd been notified by the airport that our return tickets had been changed as the new virus began to close down domestic travel. We'd stopped at the counter to get tickets reissued and confirmed that our plane was leaving for to Xi'an was scheduled to leave, but the person looked through the window and disappeared down a hallway behind a closed door as soon as he saw us. We adjusted our masks, turned to the automatic ticket kiosks to print new boarding passes, and then made our way towards the security. All we heard was our steady breath and the protesting squeak from the wheels of our luggage. As we walked down the terminal's wide, empty boulevards, the same V patterns, the lightning bolts from the steel supports at the building entrance could be seen outside. V for variant, V for virus. We walked to our gate through the eerie light. And so that, so that was our experience. And it was like we really had entered a new world. Um, we got the plane had about a hundred. Was had a room for about two hundred people. There were only about fifteen of us. We got off our off the plane in Xi'an. We went to the subway. Um, it was empty. There were plastic um, tables uh, where people were standing, wrapped completely in puppy dough ball doughboy plastic. We handed our passport to us. We got on the train, the subway again. So unreal because usually it was quite crowded. We got to our um, apartment, and at that moment, everything closed. We we couldn't have been. At, it was we got there at 4 p.m. and at midnight, everything in China was closed. If we had waited just a little bit later, we would have been out of out of our ability to go anywhere or travel anywhere. The the gate. Our uh, compound was closed, so we couldn't go out grocery shopping. Um, we eventually got coupons where we could go out one person for one week to go out and be able to buy food. Um, but it was just all of a sudden like you'd entered this brand new world. Um, yeah, and, and thank you so much for that wonderful reading. Very surreal and, and how strange uh, to be caught in that. Um, how did you feel the communication was on a, on a national level when you were there? Because I, I obviously that there's a lot of discussion about how the CCP communicates and, and you know, uh, shares that information. And I'm curious from your perspective, if you could share a bit about how that was for you. It, did it add to that paranoia, to that lack of knowledge, or, or was it something that you felt they were being transparent about? If they, I don't know if I can say that with a. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Chinese Communist Party is top down, right? What they say you do. And there was something weirdly comforting about that. You're going to wear masks. Okay, well, wear masks. You're going to download an app that says that, you, that that was called a health app that basically said that if you came in contact with anybody with COVID, your health app turned red. So mm-hmm. I was always like, what do I do if it turns red? What if it's a false positive? But nevertheless, <laughs> felt when you were around you knew no one else had that red app and you knew you had a green app so you had a little bit more confidence because you were walking around in this sort of crazy place um they said that you were going to have coupons and there was a certain sense that okay i'm glad because i don't know what else you know I, i i as i watched it break out across the world particularly in italy that's where it started first it just seemed so chaotic and i felt like when i looked around here we had these very stern guards who had, Dave and I always jack, joked about them, they had these thermometer takers that looked like plastic guns. And so when you walked out, they'd put the gun to your head and you'd be like, <laughs> and it was always came up, you know, you're always like, I hope it doesn't come up um, 101. <laughs> it was a, a high 
which are you're suddenly whisked off to the fever hospital. They built these fever hospitals in about two weeks. And our teachers kept on writing to us saying, you know, reassuring us saying, they've got the fever hospitals built. And I think, oh, I guess I'm glad. I don't know whether I'm glad. I hope I never find myself there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it was um, the message that we got from the government was, we're in control. Don't be afraid. We've got this set. Um, one of the more weird moments or surreal moments that we had is maybe um, a few days after the doors locked on our gates, we had this never ending parade of supply trucks that came under the bridge where we go. And it was supply trucks taking food to the grocery store. And so there was never empty shelves because they were very, very, you know, regimented bringing these, yeah. um, you know, toilet paper and all the things that we didn't have whereas my parents would send us pictures of costco and they'd say you know look at the kind oh, you know yeah. it's a crazy things completely bought out even things you wouldn't think you'd want you all of a sudden think maybe i should get it because i don't know whether i'm going to ever see it or not they said we have tons of paper towels but i found myself buying a big roll of paper towels just because i was afraid it was going to be there that wasn't the case in china there was this sort of sense of sort of military um a confidence that was being portrayed uh, clearly it was a message to their people as well as to us not not to us as much um but it was a really interesting contrast to what we had going on with us and i think it's something that could never happen in the u.s you know Absolutely. one of the things people yeah. often said is do you wish that what happened in china happened in america and i said it's a, a useless wish because it's just the trust in government in China is pretty high mm. and the trust in government in the U.S. is pretty low and getting lower. And I think that those two things suggest that we can't really compare our governments because, right. you know, anything our government says, we immediately go, no way. And yeah. they immediately say, OK, um, I think over the two years, over the two years I've been writing my books, I've seen more distrust from some of my students in their government. Um, some of my students, I won't say who, participated in what was called the blank paper revolution. I don't think it got a lot of coverage here in the United States, but it was in about 2022. I get the dates all confused, but sometime around then where the student, there, there was just lockdown after lockdown after lockdown. And in the beginning, you know, when I was there, the lockdowns were respected. We, we accepted them. We figured they'd figure out a way to feed us. We never were hungry. There was always a way to either get out or food that was distributed to the compound that we lived in. I think by the end, people were getting tired of it. And my, mm. some of my students, what it was, was they went out and protested when they were supposed to be in lockdown with blank paper, mm. with white paper, white paper in front of their face. Um, there's, there's cameras everywhere in China. So they right. went out came and talked to us and said, you know, do you think that was a good idea? And do you think it's safe? And our government is saying that COVID isn't safe. And I said, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I think that it's a lot safer than it was. Um, I, I, I seem to be one of the unusual people. I never got COVID. Mm -hmm. um, my husband got it twice, but I never got it at all. And, and my husband, you know, when he got it, it was serious. He said, you know, I, and that's what he told the students. He said, you know, I think that your government recognizes that large portions of your population could die. I think the, the difficulty is, is whenever you're talking about China, you always have to preface it with by 1.4 billion people live right. there. 350,000 people, 350 million people live in the United States. Whenever they're talking about a vaccine, unrolling a vaccine for 1.4 billion people is a huge contrast to unrolling it for 350 million people. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting numbers that I came across when I was doing research for the book is that um, I, I was interested in who was Gen Z. You know, how many students, how many, you know, I was teaching Gen Z. That's what my book is about is China's Gen Z. There's 250 million Gen Z in China. That's the same, almost the same number as there are just people in the United States. And so the number of students who are Gen Z is like the population of the American, the, the whole of America. And so trying to kind of think that way um, and trying to think about how their government operates, it's always going to be a little bit more cautious, paranoid. I don't know what you want to call it, because they have this very large number of people that have to be fed that have to, you know, that, that they've gone through starvation in, in, in many of their lifetimes. They've had famines in many of their lifetimes. They've had many plagues in many of their lifetimes. And so trying to kind of 
organize in that way makes it just a really different world than the one that we live in. Yeah, culturally, it's, it's difficult to wrap your head around just due to the uh, mm-hmm. the prominence of individualism guiding us, you know, and, and it, it almost seems like when you were mentioning sort of like the military support and seeing those kinds of uh, operations and movements happening locally, uh, it kind of flies in the face of, of individualism, that that unified front <laughs> where, where, you exactly. know, like people can't can't have their own opinion on something or their own, uh, you know, they can't be fending for themselves. But I'm curious, uh, after all of this, how your perspective on government has changed uh, since since all of this has transpired and especially coming back and seeing the contrast. Uh, how has that personally affected your belief in government or, or what what has that done to you? I'm an American. <laughs> and I always say that to the students. I'd say, you know, I, I admire your government, but I'm an American, you know, and individualism is important to me. I, it's not important. And we, we have this communication. So they would say, so why can't your people wear masks? What's wrong with putting a mask on? Why aren't you able? And I said, you know, I can wear a mask. I, I feel as though I, I, I want to wear a mask because I don't want to make my mother sick or my grandmother sick or I don't want to make other people sick. But I understand some people who feel as though this is fascism saying that you have to wear a mask. And so I said, you know, what you have to do, you know, we'd always go back to, I said, you have to go back to the American Revolution where they did not want a king telling them what to do, especially a king that was across the country, across the ocean. Um, for me, you know, sometimes I wish we could go back to a more naive time where government was more trustworthy and we felt more like what they were telling us was for the good of the nation. I don't, I don't think that's a, I don't know what, what it would take to take us back to that place. Um, I I would see, and I saw in China sort of that existed probably more for their parents the students, because they had traveled, many of them had gone to Britain. You know, again, it was a top school, so they had studied abroad. So they'd gone to America, they'd gone to Britain. Most of them didn't really like our country that much, our government that much. They found it chaotic. They found it hard to figure out what the truth was. Um, they thought it was puzzling that we were allowed, that we thought it was okay to publish things that were not true, that were lies, and they didn't understand why that would be possible. Um, and so uh, most of them were very proud of their country, you know, lo- yeah. loved their country. And when I was there, most of them were proud with the way the country um, managed COVID. As I said, you know, a-, a year or two after that, they got more tired of that and more frustrated with that. And I think that that's one thing that I found about the Gen Z students is that they were more willing to question than I thought most Chinese students were would be. They were um, more open. I was really surprised at how they were willing to say a lot of things in their essays that I thought would not be something that they'd be willing to say. Um, When I went to publishing, I was really, really careful about asking them, is this okay? Can I put this in? Do you want to have your name connected to it? They They have two names. They have American name that they used in my class because they've been learning English since they were, you know, six or five. Wow. And that's that I knew them by, but when I was putting together the book, I said, do you want me to use your Chinese name? Do you want me to use your American name? Most of them wanted me to use their American name, not their Chinese name. A few did want me to use their Chinese names. A few wanted it to be anonymous, and a few said they didn't really want it to be in there at all. And I tried to, I recognized that and put that into the book, you know, as part of the, the, the pieces, because their voices are very strong, and I wanted to make sure that they were willing and confident enough to have it in there. I didn't want to get anybody in trouble for obvious reasons. Right, right. And I, I was curious, I'm glad that you mentioned, uh, as you're putting together this, uh, this memoir, how you go about reconciling something that might be considered sensational, because this is a topic that is so charged in many respects, but how do you you how do you find the foundation of your own story because very easily it could be swept away by what covid is in in the news and the media and other perspectives how do you find the anchors of your own life within this given that there's so many moving parts um around this memoir right well it went through a lot of iterations it's got at least five different titles <laughs> and uh... And it started out being almost, I pictured it like an anthology with their voices and not me at all. And then I worked with an editor and the editor felt like it needed me in there. And mm. I was, I, I'm, you know, I'm an academic, you know, when I write 
academic books. I, I, you know, the whole thing is to kind of distance myself and not let myself be in there. And so that was obviously the most awkward part that I had. Even to the very end, I had people say, you got to have, you got to bring in your feelings. What were you thinking here? How did you feel about that? <laughs> if you read the book, you'll see kind of me gradually emerge. Um, but I felt like my purpose for writing the book wasn't to sensationalize COVID. I knew that was a selling point, and I knew that that you know I knew I had I, I had a discussion with my um, niece who's a a, pan, a pandemic survivor. She um, she's nineteen twenty three. She she was a class of twenty of. What was she? She's 23 years old, so she graduated from college. The pandemic happened right in the middle of oh. her sophomore year, and so she went home. Zoom things. She, classes started. Classes stopped. She'd hoped to study abroad. That was turned mm. off. So when I said that I wanted to call it teaching in the pandemic, she said, "Oh, please don't use pandemic." <laughs> and I said. Oh, you can use COVID. So there's a certain sense that in that generation that I was actually feeling like I was writing for or two, there was a, an exhaustion about not wanting it to be about COVID or pandemic. It's there. And I feel as though the pandemic for me is less, oh my God, look at the pandemic and more like a, a bouncing ball to see how our two governments work and how our people work, you know, how, what, what, what she, Emily, my, my niece said about the pandemic versus what these students said about the pandemic. And so it becomes hopefully more about the people, hopefully more about their lives and who they are. Um, I think I found out from them interesting things. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I found out that I went through evolutions about is that most of, they're all only children. Most of them are only children. Um, most of them were raised by their grandparents. Their parents were working in the big cities, and the cities weren't considered extremely healthy place to raise children. And so most of the children were raised by their grandparents in rural villages. Mm -hmm. And so all of them had a story about their grandparents. And in the beginning, I thought, how sad to not be raised by your parents. Very quickly, I started to think, how sad. I don't know my grandparents very well. My grandparents were not part of my life at all. Um, they, and so you kind of see the benefit of being raised by your grandparents and the loss of not being raised by your parents. And that seemed to nuance my whole way of looking at their lives and my life. Yeah, that's just fascinating. The, it's such a complex thing to look at the the cultural habits of a, of a nuclear family mm -hmm. and what that means in, in a in a culture that is so radically, I don't want to say like diametrically opposed because that, that's certainly not the case, but the commonalities were, you know, I'm sure are, are at the focal point of what the same bright moon is and what a great title. And I'd love to pry about further titles. Cause I, I just love the process of naming something because the same bright moon seems something so optimistic and then <laughs> comparing it to pandemic. I, I imagine that that was an interesting uh, battle that you might've had there. Um, but I got a couple more questions to be mindful of your time. This has been such a pleasure in, in getting to learn about this work. But could you share a bit about the publication process and, and what was the experience of getting this book out into the world? Sure. Um, I started out um, trying to get a literary agent. Um, and I had a lot of people who were interested, maybe 10 agents were interested and in looking at it. Most of them were um, unsure because uh, at the time it was I was I was shopping it around. China was really negative. People were really negative about China, and they had a real concern that you know, for all we knew, we might have a hot war with China because of Taiwan, and that would um, impact the the book in uh, in a in a powerful way. Maybe good, maybe bad. Maybe people would want to read about Chinese students. Maybe people wouldn't want to read about Chinese students. Um, COVID also was kind of going through, so that there were a lot of people who sat on it, who said, you know, they they wanted me to make it more about COVID, or they wanted to make it more negative about China. And neither one was I. I was really very interested in doing because mm -hmm. it, was, it was a book about my students and I, I really needed it to be about that. Um, my, one of my early books was, uh, early names was um, Panda Hugger versus Dranda, Dragon Slayer um, because those are the two approaches it seems to China. There's either politicians who are dragon slayers want to go out and slay the dragon uh, on Panda Huggers, which are, you know, kind of um, <laughs> love, Panda, love China no matter what. <laughs> 
Um, it then became pizza meats dumplings, which I thought was just too cutesy. Um, but it, both of those were things that came out of things that a student came to, to, said to me. One of the students said, "I was we were talking about the difference in writing, and when you write an essay in America, you have to have a thesis at the very beginning. You got to hit them with a thesis, and then you have evidence afterwards to back the thesis." And I was trying to teach them how to write it that way so they'd be able to publish academic uh, works. And they told me that um, Chinese writing is you have a lot of details, a lot of details, a lot of details, and then you reach a conclusion at the end. And I said, um, I said that's interesting. It feels a little bit like a murder mystery that way because you're, you're putting the details yourself. You don't know how to put it together unless you start with it. And the, the student responded, it's, I think, the same way we eat because Americans like things out in the open. They eat pizza, which you're going to know exactly what you're eating right at the very beginning, or hamburgers, the hamburger stuff is right. Whereas we like dumplings and bauza because it's kind of hidden and you don't know exactly <laughs> what you're writing. I thought that was just such a clever way of talking about it. So I thought pizza meets dumplings was good, but it became a little too cutesy. I then had the kind of generic uh, title Ch Chinese Lessons which it was for a long time, and then I Googled it and realized there were about six books called Chinese Lessons, so I, I stopped that. And then um, the same bright moon came from a statement that a student made to me when we were having a kind of a tense moment in our um, conversation. I, I have a little little bit from there if, you, if you're interested. Yeah. I can read a little bit from Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Um, uh, let me see if I can find it. It was the second day, second to the last day of the course, and the little bell played its short melodic snippet announcing the end of class. But Paykex, one of my students, remained. She sat in the back of the room and her head looked like she was gonna explode. Her eyes narrowed. We just finished reading a poem called Dedication by the Nobel Laureate Milosevic, um, a poem that asks what poetry is if its purpose isn't to save humanity. This was actually, a, a, I was trying to get them interested in social justice and, you know, sort of, and it didn't have to be about politics, but, you know, what do you care about and can you make, po can poem change things? All through this discussion, Pay Kicks looked at me directly, her eyes flashing, her face livid. When class ended, she waited for everyone to leave and then came forward with her phone. She jabbed her finger at the screen, pulling up a post she'd seen on U.S. social media site. Shit made in China never lasts long. The Chinese virus will die soon. She then pulled up a few new tweets coming from the White House blaming China. Why does your country say this? Is this what your leadership is about, she asked me. It only makes me love my country, makes me feel more love for my country. Are you stupid? A virus has no, no borders. We all see the same bright moon. We all live in the same country. We all share the same destiny with people all over the world. I hadn't seen the post before she called it up and I had no response. I knew that Peikex wasn't Han, Han Chinese. She was actually one of several students that I taught from Xinjiang province. Her parents were both from different minority groups, and she told me early that in the semester that they spoke different dialogues from dialogues dialects from each other. She told me early um, from each other, which raised challenges growing up. The family relied on Mandarin to speak to each other, and her Chinese name, Pajian, embraced her region's diversity. She was named after, after a historic Kazakh princess. China isn't primitive and isolated anymore. People should visit China and experience the life here before they give this judgment. We have 55 ethnic minorities. Histories of Xinjiang has 13 ethnic groups with brilliant art and culture. What about your country that kills your ethnic minority, like George Floyd? She was choked with rage. And this was right after George Floyd was killed, and that became a whole discussion that we had mm. with students about minorities and the ethnic minorities and what that meant in our country. It was wonderful for me because it forced me to think about what my country is and what my country does in a really, really charged way. And so Sing Bright Moon is a positive statement. I wanted to start with that, kind of reminding us all that we do see the same bright moon. Um, it actually comes from a Tang Dynasty poem I, I discovered where there's a, something called the, the same bright moon. Uh, it, it's in the opening of the book um, in 800 AD, so a long, long time ago. But it says, over the, over the mountain, we enjoy the same bright moon under the same clouds. Even in two places, we still miss each other. And I thought it was a beautiful poem that, you know, came from a charged motion. But as I discovered more about it, I found that, you know, we really, we really should, you know, in this world of war, in this world of conflict, try to find that same bright moon that we see, or there's no hope. You know, there's finally no hope for us, I, I think. Um, I think teaching 
is like sort of this moment where you're not um, bashing each other, but you're listening to each other or in a good teaching situation, you're, li you're truly listening to each other. And, you know, the best classroom I've ever been in is one in which I learned from my students. Um, and, and I felt like that was something that this, this um, experience gave me was, you know, to the nth degree I learned from my students in, in so many ways. Um, I can't believe how um, complicated it must have been to spend some time there and to do the work that you were meant to do there, but utterly powerful. And uh, I love the readings. Thank you so much for sharing those uh, with me today. They they were really incredible. But I have one more question for you because I think this that was a, a beautiful statement to, to kind of wrap it up on. But I'm going to ask one more of you. What is on the horizon for you um, as as you complete this book? It's out in the world now. Um, what are the thoughts that you're left with and what are you looking forward to improve on? Uh, is this something that you will be pursuing more and more publications or or will you be doing the, the teaching uh, thing again? Yes and yes. Um, so what I what I hope to do, you know, I'm not seeing myself as, you know, writing series. This isn't going to become the series. I do hope to go back to China. I would love to go back and teach again. And they've invited us back. Um, there's a lot of complications that we have to go through in terms of family. My parents are old and mm. Dave's parents are old and we have pets and there's all those things that you have to work through. Um, but I, I would hope that I could go back to China and maybe follow through and find out what the students are doing now, you know, what they're maybe 10 years from now, what they're doing. Right now, what I do is I teach literacy um, to adults. There's 400,000 people adults in, in San Diego who are reading at a fourth or fifth grade level they and, and not being able to read English living in America strikes me as a huge liability so I teach uh, Afghan woman how to read she's um, uh, twice a week and that's really really fun and I also teach a Somali man um, who's about 26 years old and has uh, rudimentary reading level uh, in, in English um, how to read so those are ways that I can keep my hand in teaching English well at the same time sure I'll write who knows what I'll do um, uh, I, I sometimes think it would be fun to write something about Ch Chinese myth with my students because they wrote some really beautiful stories about their myths, and I couldn't really use that in my book, so maybe I'll turn to that and mm -hmm. figure out something to do with it, but I, I don't know exactly yeah. what. Yeah, well, that, that sounds like a, a life well lived, and uh, I want to thank you so much for your time, and because it's a beautiful note to end on, but... For the work that you're doing as an educator, this is incredibly vital work because you're you're looking to serve underprivileged folks and maybe folks who are, you know, uh, across a multicultural divide or so we think and and you're bringing people together. So it's a wonderful example. I'm so thrilled to get to chat with you today, but this sounds like a beautiful read and I hope that folks go check it out. I'll make sure that we have links in the episode description so that people can uh, can take a look but but again thank you so much this was an absolute pleasure wendy and i hope that uh, we get to chat down the road yeah thank you so much for doing this work i really appreciate you getting getting the word out so thank you so much yes well you take care i will be in touch on the internet but i uh once again i hope you enjoy your monday is it i'm doing interviews on monday i forget what day it is <laughs> <laughs> all right well you Very take good. care and i will be in touch okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye.